For the past several weeks, we have been together uh, in a marriage conference with the Apostle Paul himself. As in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he is answering a question that was asked of him by the church that was in Corinth uh, concerning these things that pertain to specifically Christian marriage. And so in our first study in chapter 7, we talked about the purpose of marriage. Why did God create it according to the various dynamics uh, that he used to create it? Why did he do it that way? And so we looked at uh, that in our first study. Then last week, as we looked at the first 12 or 11 or 12 verses of uh, chapter 7, um, we kind of looked at learning how to love one another, learning about our spouse and how it is that we're to communicate love to someone who can be so vastly different uh, to ourselves and seeing what God would have to say to us concerning that and also the why. Why would God um, have us do that and how does it relate to our relationship with him and his design for us eternally? And so uh, that was last week. And now tonight, as we continue, we look at, um, really, what is our perspective uh, or our mindset to be as Christians in a world when we're trying to balance all of the various things in our lives? What context does marriage have in, in, the, um, in, in the grand scheme of what we're called to be uh, before the Lord? And so that's kind of where Paul goes uh, from here. And now where we left off is with a reminder that divorce or the ending of a marriage, is uh, an offense to God, uh, except and unless, in the case, of course, that there is adultery. That is the one place that God uh, does allow for uh, divorce and the whole thing. Now, one of the things that I love about the Lord, and I'm sure that you do too, is how competent He is to deal with complicated things. And when we look at all that God made and all who God is, we know that he certainly is competent to deal with complicated things. If we just look across the room at the, the people that are here with us tonight and we uh, um, just remember that there's not one of us that looks like, even just the, the very appearance of what we are, it doesn't look like another one of us in here. That, that as many people as there are in the world and as many people as there ever will be in the world, there's no two of us that look exactly alike. That God is so creative and so vast in his ability to, uh, to do things that he's able to make it so unique. And that's just on the very surface. But then you get underneath the surface and uh, you look at the way a person is wired and the way that they think and the way that they move. And, 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 and you have a whole new invisible world of complication that God alone understands and can untie and comprehend. And then it goes beyond that, and you consider even within the creation itself. And you look at the various systems that God has made, and the things that he has made, and things that are visible and invisible. And then you think about the spiritual things that we can't even comprehend, the relationship between uh, in heaven and earth, and how those, those ties are together. And, 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 I mean, the more you grow in him, the more you realize how big he is, and you realize how in control he is and that he's able to deal with incredible things. But you just look at one individual life, just you right here, right now. And you think about how complex you are. I mean, we're so complex that we don't even understand ourselves. But yet God understands everything about us infinitely more than we do about ourselves. And that's complex. That's complicated. But now what God has done 
is he's made it so that we're going to join our complicated life to another complicated life. And now you have compound complexity because you've taken all the complications of one life, added them with the complications of another life, and you make the two one. And if two people, just two individuals, can never be the same, then that means infinitely more so, listen, two marriages can never be the same. That because two marriages are made up of two individuals that are unlike anybody else. And so what that means is that now if you have two marriages or four marriages or however many marriages are represented here tonight, you have that many various factors that go into making that marriage what it is, making it complex as it is, making it as difficult as it can be or as glorious as it can be. And there's only one being in all of the universe that can sort all of that out. And guess what? It's not you or me. It's God. And I love that about God, is that he can take something as complex as a marriage and he can tell us how it works. Now here's the amazing thing, is that no matter what the person or the couple or the circumstances are that make a marriage what it is, that if those people and those couples are obedient to God and his word, then he's able to make that marriage good and blessed, no matter how complex uh, the problems in it or the people in it uh, might be. Obedience to God will always translate into blessing. But people are complicated, marriages are complicated, and there is not a silver bullet that speaks to every situation because of the complexity that makes marriages what they are. Now, having said that, there's something that happens in this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that is unique to every other chapter in the whole Bible. There's not one other chapter from Genesis to Revelation that does something that takes place in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 more than once, and that is this that the Apostle Paul, who's writing these things by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God himself, has to say, as he's given instruction, that these things that I'm saying are not from God. These are from me. And then to say later, these things that I'm saying are absolutely from God and not from me. And and you think about it, that never happens anywhere else in the entire Bible but here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And you say, well, why in the world is that? Why does God even allow something like that to be spoken in that way? Here's why. Because life and marriage especially can be so complicated that if God was absolutely black and white about every decision that's to be made and every outcome from what takes place within a marriage, if he was black and white on all of those things, then what that would show is that either he doesn't know the complication that makes up a marriage or that he doesn't care about the complications that go on into a marriage or that he doesn't understand the various complications that can take place within a marriage. And he absolutely does understand all of those things. And because no two lives and no two marriages and no two situations are alike, there are things and times when there are principles and precepts that God gives that are ideals, but God knows absolutely that there are times that those principles, precepts, and ideals are not the right answer. 
And so God in his wisdom gives to us what is best, but he doesn't lay upon us a black and white wherein we would walk around in condemnation because we failed to follow up with the ideal because of the complication that goes into our marriage. And so all that to say is that because of those complications, God doesn't want us to walk around in condemnation where he knows we're apt to fail. But he also wants us to know what is right and what is the ideal. So Paul begins in verse 12 where we resume with one of these such occasions where he says to the church, he says, but to the rest. And now what he's going to speak to are married couples the rest that he's speaking to here are married couples where there is one part of that marriage that is saved and the other part is unsaved. So you have an unequal yoke in the situation. Who he's speaking to? A saved wife of an unsaved husband or a saved husband that has an unsaved wife. He says, to the rest, speak I, not the Lord. In other words, this is a gray area. That what we're walking into now when we talk about a marriage like this is we're talking about an area that is so complicated that if I give to you a black and white, somebody's going to get cut in pieces here. And I don't want that to happen. So you've got to understand something. Is that this is the ideal, but he says this is the opinion of someone filled with the Holy Spirit of God that knows a thing or two about life. But it's not always going to work out this way. He says, to the rest speak I, not the Lord. He says, if any brother has a wife that believes not... And she be pleased to dwell with him, meaning that she doesn't want to end the marriage, even though he's a fanatic, born-againer, fundamentalist, Bible-thumping, pain in the neck. But she wants to stay for whatever reason. He says, then let him not put her away. Don't divorce her if she wants to stay. And the woman, which has a husband that believes not. So now she's the one who is nagging constantly, asking him to come to church with her, putting Bible tracts in his sandwich so that when he bites into it at lunch and pulls out, there's a gospel tract there. And you know, and now she's the one who's saved and she's constantly trying to bring him into the faith. But it says, but if, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, then let her not leave him. So God says, if you are the saved half of an unequal partnership, then if that other person who's unsaved wants to continue in the marriage, then the best thing is for you to stay in that marriage and not leave the situation because it's uncomfortable or because it's unpleasant or because maybe it's a little bit even caustic or painful in the whole thing. If you can stick it out, stick it out. And here's why. And I love the Bible because the Bible always tells us why. He says for in verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Now that word sanctified, what it means, it means to be set apart. The word sanct is the root word. It's where we get the word holy, meaning that the unsaved half of an unequal partnership is brought under the covering that covers over that which belongs to the Lord in that situation when there is a marriage that is unequal. Now, there is a covering that is over God's people within this world. That is absolute. From Genesis to Revelation, God takes care of his people. 
There's a protection that exists upon a home that is sanctified or set apart for God. There's a defense that's invisible, that's unseen. There's an insulation that exists within that house wherein God will insulate you from things that would come upon you should you be not saved. Now, it's interesting because I've known both things. I was brought up in a not-Christian environment, and I now am the head of a household that is a Christian environment. And as I just think in my mind and compare the two things side by side, to me it's so crystal clear that there is a covering that exists over the house of a believer. And what God is saying is that the unsaved half of the unequal partnership gets to enjoy the blessing of being under that covering and having that protection within their life. And that for them, hopefully, they'll realize and say, hey, I see a difference between what it's like in my house and what it's like elsewhere in the world. And it will bring that person into a place where they will accept faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul and God give another reason why God allows that covering to be placed upon an unbeliever. It isn't because they are saved automatically. We're going to hear Paul say that in just a minute. It isn't because God accepts what he's about to call an unclean person because they're married to a clean person. That's not why. Here's why. He says, otherwise, your children are unholy or unclean, but now they are holy. So the reason that God gives that he will place his covering upon an unsaved person in a marriage where there's an unequal yoke is because of the children. Did you know that God is very interested in the future of a child? And what God wants is the absolute best environment for a child to grow up in so that they are nurtured in a proper way and they are ultimately brought into faith in Jesus Christ with the least amount of scars and wounds as possible. And what God knows is that what is maybe a bad or a tense or a um, uncomfortable situation in a home where there is a mom and a dad is better than a situation where there's a home where there's a mom or a dad. In other words, mom and dad, you might not see eye to eye on things, and you might think I would be happier as if I was with someone who is more equally like me, a saved person or an unsaved person. But what God is saying is that for the sake of a child and what's best for them, you need to put that desire aside and hang in there. Because the environment that that child is going to be raised up in is going to be affected by the decisions that you make in this vein. And if you are the believer, then you need to look out for them more than you would look out for yourself. Now, God is so desiring this for the kids that he is willing to put his covering on what he calls an unclean person for the sake of seeing a child thrive within that environment. So the question is this, that, that we would have reading this. Does this mean that if the situation is such that there's a single parent home and that single mom or that single dad isn't married, does that then mean that the children are unclean? Can we reason that out? That if this marriage breaks up, then is the child then rendered unclean? No. Because what God is saying is this, is that that 
home is still sanctified. It's still set apart because of the believing parent. What God did is he put a sanctity upon the unsaved person when they were in the house so that the house would be clean, so that the house would be covered. But if that person is not in the house, then that doesn't make the house unclean. It just removes the person that was under a covering of God that maybe didn't deserve to be, but was for the sake of the child. So no, if that's the situation, the child is not then unclean. So you say, okay, well, that still doesn't answer the question that remains, which is what about a situation where a child lives in a house and neither parent are holy? There is no saved person within that household. Then how does God view that child? And that's the complicated question, isn't it? What does God do with a child, someone who really doesn't know the difference between good and evil, that is simply a product of their nature? How will God and how does God view or how will he judge a child that's in such a situation? And the scripture doesn't give to us a definitive answer, but it does give us insight. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, in verse 39, when Moses was just about to die and he is rehashing to the children of Israel their history while they wandered in the wilderness, Moses speaks to the people and he says this. He says, everyone who is 20 years old and above, when the faithless Israelites said, no, we're too afraid to go take the promised land, and we wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, everyone who is 20 20 years old and above is going to die without seeing the promised land. But, Moses says, and it's Deuteronomy 139, he says, Moreover, your little ones, which you said should be a prey, and your children, which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil, they shall go in thither, and unto them will I give it, and they will possess it. And so what God is acknowledging here is that those that were under the age of 20 in that setting are not held accountable for the sin that was collective within the nation. There was mercy and grace that was extended. David, uh, and this kind of doesn't maybe necessarily apply as perfectly because David was a saved man. But when David and Bathsheba sinned before the Lord and there was a child that was conceived, part of the punishment that David and Bathsheba would receive for their sin is that God said the child that was conceived will surely die. And when David heard those words, he fasted and he mourned and he put on sackcloth and he begged God to spare the child's life. But God didn't. Seven days came and went and the child died. And as soon as the child died, David stood up and he anointed his head and washed himself and he began to eat food. And the people were confused and they said, why, why did he fast and mourn while the child was alive and now the child's dead and he seems okay? And David gives the reply. He says in 2 Samuel 12, 23, he says, but now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. So even the child that was conceived in an unclean situation was seen by God as innocent and was taken into heaven. When the prophet Jonah was called to go to Nineveh, which was a completely godless society, there was nothing in it that was righteous at all. And, and they were so vile that Jonah himself didn't want to go. You know the story. God had to ordained some special circumstances just to get him where he was supposed to go. 
But Jonah was upset because the men of Nineveh repented when they heard his preaching. And he was angry with God. He said, God, I don't want these people saved. Do you know what they've done to our people? They don't deserve heaven. They should die. And God's reply to Jonah at the very close of the book, when Jonah was wallowing in his ministry because, or misery because of what God did in sparing them, God looked at Jonah and he said these words. He said, and should I not spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein more, there are more than 120,000 persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and also much cattle. And so what we learn is that God is very much concerned with not only the welfare, but also the justice that will be meted out to a child or someone who's under the age of understanding what the difference is between good and evil. And so what happens to a child where both parents are saved? I can't tell you with absolute certainty, but what I can tell you is this, is that in Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, when all things are said and done and things are set right there where they're supposed to be and all of the redeemed are before the throne of God in heaven and we can see all things and understand all things that God has done, the words that will come out of our mouth in that day are righteous and true are your judgments, O God. Meaning we will look at the way he decided in every situation and we will say it was absolutely right. That how you discerned that, how you judged it, where everybody ended up is perfectly just. There's not one shred of injustice or unfairness or uh, um, perversion in the way that you worked through those things. And so we don't know with absolute certainty, but what we do know is that God is good and that God is just. And so he says, otherwise, we're your children unholy. And so a covering goes upon that house for the sake of the children. But he says then in verse 15, if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So if the unbelieving half of that uneven partnership wants to leave, Paul says you are perfectly free in that instance to let them go, to not try to, you don't have to hold on and save it. And here's why, verse 16. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether you shall save your wife? Meaning this, is that you do not have power at the end of the day to control the outcome of that unsaved person's eternal destination. You can give a good testimony. You can live the right way before the Lord but you cannot save their soul. That is completely up to God. And he does not keep you on the hook for what is the outcome in that. And so God says you're not under bondage in such cases. Now, it's interesting that this is one of those areas where Paul says, I'm giving my judgment, but I am not gonna attach the signature of Christ to this. And the reason for that is because there is so much complication when it comes to marriages in these types of situations. And you could have abuse, and you can have neglect and you can have a situation where you have a saved and an unsaved person where it is so absolutely unpleasant that it becomes almost impossible for the saved person to endure under those circumstances. And Paul knew by his wisdom that if he attached the signature of Christ to this, that he would have a whole lot of people living in a state of condemnation that God is not condemning. And I can't help as I study this and think about it and just in my own mind 
think through all of the various situations that I've heard over my lifetime, that the thing that comes to my mind when I think about this is the woman that was taken before Jesus in the very act of adultery to be stoned to death because of her sin. And her sin absolutely merited a stoning death. But Jesus looked at that woman and he said, woman, where are your accusers? And she said, there's none, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. And I believe that there are a lot of people that have been married that maybe even sit here tonight in a situation where you carry maybe guilt, condemnation, maybe reproach. You think God can never use my life or God can't put his favor or his blessing on my life. Or maybe I'm saved, maybe, I don't even know because of of the way that I failed within my marriage. And I believe that by the Spirit of God, the word that he would have for you tonight is this. Listen, no matter what the situation was, I understand the complexity that these things are. And you are a new creation in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I do not condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. He gives new life. Paul said, I forget those things which are behind and I press toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And that's the word that God would give uh, in this whole thing. Then in verse 17, Paul pulls back a little bit and he addresses a broader audience. He talks to everyone now. So whether you're married, whether you're single, divorced, widowed, young or old, Paul is talking to you in verse 17. He says, but as God has distributed or given out to every man, as the Lord has called everyone, so let him walk and so ordain I in all the churches. He changes gears here a little bit and he begins to to talk about a more generic uh, um, spectrum of the circumstances that make up an individual life. Now, every one of us that are here tonight, uh, we have a life and that life is made up of a whole series of circumstances that we live in right now, the context of our dwelling, our job situation, our marital situation, our financial situation, our spiritual state and our spiritual progress or lack thereof, whether we're saved or not. I mean, everything that makes our life what it is are the circumstances of our life. And what Paul is saying to us here in this is that the circumstances that you find yourself and that I find myself in here tonight are circumstances that have been given to us by God. That's what he says in verse 17. He says, as God has distributed to every man and as God has then called every man, meaning that he's placed you and called you into the very circumstances that make up your life right now. And then here's the command. He says, so let him or her walk in them. In other words, you have a set of circumstances. Some of those circumstances are very good and you like them. And some of those circumstances are very bad and you hate them and would do anything to have those circumstances not be a part of your life. And that is true for every single one of us that's here. We have good things and we have bad things. And here's what God says to you. I've given you all of those things the good and the bad, they all exist within your life. They're from me. And here's my will for you tonight is that you would walk within those circumstances. Embrace the circumstances that are with you. You say, well, what kinds of things is he talking about? He explains in verse 18. He says, is any man called being circumcised? Meaning that he is a Jew. He's called into the faith and he is a seed of Abraham. He's a descendant of Abraham. He's Jewish. 
He says, then let him not become uncircumcised. Don't let him think to himself, you know what? In the age of, of Gentiles and this whole church thing, it's not really hip to be a Jew, especially in the city of Corinth. So what I'll do is because I'm in Christ, I'll renounce my Judaism and I will label myself as a Gentile for the sake of blending a little bit better in a church wherein most of the people are Gentiles and Jews are, well, Jews are Jews and they've never been liked. We've never been accepted or received. And so I'll set that aside. I'll change that circumstance for the sake of maybe fitting in a little bit better. He says, if that's your situation, if you're, if you're a Jew, you're a Jew. He says, don't try to change it. You don't have to, to move out of that and change your uh, affiliation. It's what you are. He says, is any man called in uncircumcision? He's a Gentile. Let him not be circumcised. Don't think that the, on the converse that you'll be more saved if you take upon yourself some of the Old Testament customs, which was a struggle that they had in the early churches. He says, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. In other words, God's not concerned about what you're calling yourself. Methodist, Baptist, Calvary Chapelite, you know, Jew, non-Jew. God's not concerned with any of those things that are semantic. What he's concerned about is are you living in obedience to him? Is your heart in surrender and submission to his will for your life? And then he, he, he goes on. He says in verse 20, let every man abide or stay and that's a key word there, in the same calling wherein he was called. Here's what he's getting at here. He's saying the circumstances that make your life what it is, whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you're in a marriage that's unequal, one saved and one not, whether you are rich, whether you are poor, whether you're in a career that you hate or whether in your career that you love or what ever the circumstances are. You live in the part of the world that you don't like to live in. You are, 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 are in a class of society that you don't like being in. You have personality traits and things. He says, whatever it is that makes your life what it is, stay in that life. And here's why. Because God is the one that has distributed to you those circumstances and God is working through those circumstances, his will both in and through and for your life. Those circumstances are the wheel and you are the clay and God's hand is using the wheel and the clay to make you into something and for something that is very, very great. So don't move off the wheel. That's what God is saying to us here. One of the things that struck me a long, 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 long time ago as a Christian when I was reading through the life of David, and the life of David's always inspiring to see how God took someone and, and made him into to what God made David into. And one of the things that struck me that has never left me, it's been a guide to me and a help to me my whole Christian experience, is that when the prophet Samuel first came to young David and dumped the horn of oil on his head, signifying that he would one day be the king. By the way, he did not tell him, at least according to the scripture, he did not tell him that the purpose of that oil was that he would one day be the king. He came to him, he dumped the oil on his head. The message that David would receive is that God's got a plan for you. And that day Samuel turned around and he left. He told Saul that he would be a king, bad idea. Didn't say it to David. Just dumped the oil on his head, said, God's got a plan for you. 
and then he left. And the thing that strikes me about it is this. What David did as soon as Samuel left. You know what he did? He turned around. He walked out of the house that he was in. And he went right back into the field where he had left the sheep behind. And he kept on watching the sheep. He didn't say, wow, God's got a plan for me. Looks like I'm moving up in the world. Dad, you better sign the check and send me to university because I need an education if I'm going to serve God. He didn't do any of those things. God's got a plan for your life, so you know what you should do with that? Go back and do what you were doing yesterday and do it tomorrow and do it faithfully. And here's why. Because God is going to use those circumstances to move things to where they need to be so that you're in the right place at the right time so that his plan can unfold. And it wasn't very long after David went back out into the field, whether it was weeks or months, that his father came to him and said, hey, I need you to do me a favor. Bring this food to your brothers in the battle. And David said, all right, Dad, whatever you want. And as he went into that battle, he saw a nine-foot-six uncircumcised Philistine giant named Goliath blaspheming the God of Israel. And when David saw that, something stirred up within him, and he knew what he had to do. And from there, the plan of God began to unfold within his life but it happened so naturally. And the way that God works within our lives to bring us where he wants to bring us is through the circumstances that we're in today. And so he says to us, be content and embrace the things that are going on in your life as comfortable or as uncomfortable as they are because that's what God's going to use to get you where he's ultimately taking you. So don't be looking for the way out constantly and totally changing the scenery and whatnot for the sake of trying to bring comfort into your life or make things maybe a little bit easier than you would want them to be. Whatever your calling is today, embrace it and trust him. You say, well, if you knew how difficult my life was and how difficult the circumstances are that I have, then you would want those circumstances changed too and you would do anything in your power to, to have those things removed. You're right, I know that, because I've been there. But here's what I can tell you tonight by experience and, and by the word of God, is that every single one of us in this room tonight has one piece of paper that makes up our life. You, you can picture it in your mind. Picture a piece of notebook paper that has the, you know, the blue lines and the red margins and the three holes on the side. You get one piece, so do I. And everything upon your life has to fit upon that piece of paper because no one gets to. So that means your family. It means your marriage if you're married. It means your job if you have a job. It means your bills if you have to pay bills. It means your stuff if you have stuff. It means your health if you have issues with that. Every single thing that makes up your life has to fit on that page. And listen to me carefully. If God has that page so full that you don't have even one millimeter of margin on the side, then the reason why that page is that full without one millimeter of margin is because God knows that you need to have your page filled without having even one millimeter of margin. Because God knows what will happen to you if you have even a hairbreadth of space. God is saying, I have given to you what is in your life and the difficulty associated with those things because you need that in your life to protect you from something that you don't even understand. That's always true. There will come a time in your life, if you don't know it already, when you'll have margins. And what you'll learn when you have margins is that if you're not careful, things can come onto those margins that have no business being on your page. 
And God in his mercy will protect us from that. All that to say is this. Embrace the circumstances that you're in. Don't try and change them. God is using those things to bring you where he wants to bring you. He says, are you called being a servant? Meaning you have a job that you hate. You have a boss that's a tyrant. Care not for it. But if you may be made free, use it rather. If you have the opportunity and there's an open door, don't feel like you have to stay just because. If you have the opportunity to make your life easier and it's without consequence, do it. He says, for he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's freeman. Meaning that if you're a slave in things of earth, if you belong to God, then you're absolutely free. And if you could understand that your life is being held by him and his cir- your circumstances are his tool in design, then no matter how much you feel like a prisoner on earth, you're free because you belong to the Lord. He says, likewise, also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. You are bought with a price. Be not ye then, therefore, the servants of men. Brethren, let every man wherein he was called therein abide with God. And those two words are the most important two words in the whole chapter. Do you see them? With God. Your life belongs to God. You belong to God. And whatever he's got you in tonight, you are in that with God. And everything that he makes is beautiful, even though the situations and the circumstances sometimes are not. And so let God be God and dwell with him in it. And no matter what that situation is, if you're in it with the Lord, you're in it in a good place. Then he says in verse 25, he says, now concerning virgins, those that have never been married, you're single, you've never been married. I have no commandment from the Lord. Yet I give my judgment as one that has obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. He says, I suppose, therefore, that it is good for the present distress, I say, that it is good for a man so to be. In other words, Paul is saying this. He's saying, listen, because the world is as crazy as it is in his day as well as it is in ours, he's saying if you have the opportunity to live in simplicity, and part of that simplicity is that you have the opportunity to be single and you're content to be single, then you're going to have an easier time in many ways navigating the difficulty of this life because two is always more complicated than one, he says. And so Paul says it might be easier for you uh, to, to, if you have that opportunity to live that way. He doesn't say it's better. He just says that it's good for a man so to be within it. Now, Jesus said, and it's one of the most uh, well-known things that Jesus said, he said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you, right? The key to life, or the highest priority that tends to life, is that we would put God first in all things. But the question all of us would have is, how do you do that? What does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? That's what Paul answers when he talks now about a simple life. Look at verse 27. He says, are you bound unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed or divorced or separated. Are you loosed from a wife? Seek not a wife. But, and if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. The answer to that question, how do we seek first the kingdom of God? As I already stated, 
It's don't try to change your circumstances. Whatever circumstances you're in right now, just be content within those circumstances and let God navigate and move things the way they're supposed to be. Keep your mind and your eyes on Him. There was a time um, years, years ago now, um, I was working in Manhattan and it was a day in the middle of winter when it was like, you know, in that really sub-zero temperature range. And I was walking across a breezeway that connected two buildings about 14 stories up and the, 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 the air coming off the Hudson was just kind of piercing through and it was like probably one of the most miserable moments of my life that I can remember. And the circumstances at that time that made up the whole were so uh, dark and things were, were just so dark that there was just no hope and there was no seeing past uh, where I was. And, and there, there was a moment while I was walking across that breeze, breezeway on this new construction that there was just temporary protection that was up on the two sides of it. And you could walk pretty close to the edge uh, and you could look down, down below. And for just a split second, uh, the thought came into my mind that I, I would be happier um, falling off of the breezeway than I would walking successfully over to the other side. And, and I thought, you know, that just sounds really good right about now, just feeling this air and being in this situation. And, uh, and just for that split second, I wouldn't say that I was suicidal or that, that, was, that there was even a chance that, that I would do that. You know, none of that was, was true at that moment. But what, what I'm saying is that there was a moment where things seemed so hopeless in my life that that seemed like a better option than to continue. And I think that every one of us at some point in our life, we come to something like that, where things just seem like no matter how things fall out, I can't see any good in the future. It's just the whole thing just looks very, 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 very dark. But from where I am today in my life, uh, years on the other side of all of that, if that had happened, and if that was my last day upon the earth by my choice because I jumped or fell or whatever the case is, then I would have forfeited a world of good that God has since brought into my life and a world of hope. Suicide is checking out of God's process of bringing you to good things if you're a child of God. And I would submit to you that to change circumstances that God has ordained within your life is suicide of blessing. It's killing something that God is preparing for your future. And that's true of divorce. It's true of uh, quitting something that God wants you to hang in there and, 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 and hang tough in, in the whole thing. Don't do it. Be content where you're at and trust God that he's going to work it out for his good and his glory uh, in the long run. And so don't change your circumstances. Then he says this in verse 29. He says, but this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remains that both they that have wives be as though they had none. Now that does not mean, men, that you are free to go, looks like racquetball every night for me because I'm supposed to be as though I, no, that's not the idea. He's saying the idea, the point is this, is that don't make life all about your marriage, whether it's good or whether it's bad. Live for the Lord. He says, they that weep as though they wept not, and they that rejoice as though they rejoice not. Paul says, don't be so concerned about your emotions, how you're feeling, how you're doing. Don't be concerned with it. And then number three, he says, and they that buy 
as though they possess not, and they that use this world is not abusing it, for the fashion of this world passes away. If you go tonight to Barnes & Noble booksellers, or if you log on to your Kindle or your tablet that you read books on, and you log on to or go look at the bestseller list, I guarantee you that tonight on the bestseller list, in the top 10, you will find three books. One of those books will be How to Have a Better Marriage or Better Relationships. One of those books is going to be about how to have financial freedom or to better your economic or financial situation. And the third one is going to be how to be happy or how to make your life or your quality of life a little bit better. One of those three books, all three of those books rather, are going to be on the bestseller list. And that is true every single day of yours and my life is that those three books will exist because the whole world is looking for ways to improve the quality of their relationships, improve their economic standing, and improve the way they feel about themselves. And the Apostle Paul saves you a whole lot of time and a whole lot of money in one verse by saying this, here's how. You want to know how to be blessed in your marriage? Stop making your marriage the focus. You want to know how to improve the state of your emotions? Stop thinking about how you're feeling and constantly worrying about your state of things. And if you want to know how to do well and how to be content in this world that is so materialistic, stop worrying about possessions and obtaining and acquiring. Get your eyes off of yourself and off of this world and fix your eyes on Jesus Christ and on the kingdom that's to come. And what you're going to find is that all these other things are added to you. It's wisdom from the Apostle Paul. Fight not to let life become about things in the here and now. And then he goes on in verse 32 to give to us uh, the third piece of advice on how to seek first his kingdom. He says this, he says, But I would have you without carefulness or anxiety. He that is unmarried cares for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that is married cares for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. There's an automatic complication of life that comes with marriage. He says, but he that is married, oh, I'm sorry, verse 34, uh, there is a difference also between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit, but she that is married cares for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I speak for your profit, not that I may cast a snare upon you, but for that which is comely and that you might tend upon the Lord without distraction. Here's what Paul's saying in a nutshell in the real world. He's saying this, is that if you can live inside circumstances or without circumstances that create anxiety, do it. If it's a gift of God that he's given you to remain single, then embrace that and take it as a gift from God. If you have the ability to live without debt and all of the complication that comes from debt, then do it. Don't put yourself in that situation where you have to constantly be worrying about it. If you can live a life that's simple, wherein you don't have to be overwhelmed with possessions, house and all the things that go along with that and vehicles and cars and fleets and, and all the maintenance and you know care that comes and anxiety of all of that. If you have the opportunity to live in simplicity as much as you can, 
do it because it's going to help your relationship with the Lord. You're going to be more free to focus on him. There, we, we used to listen in the car with the kids when they were smaller uh, to Jungle Jam and Friends. Maybe you've heard that before. It's quite entertaining, even for adults, you know. But there was a song that they used to sing that has been a guide for me my whole life uh, since hearing it. It's this. The more you have, the more you have, the more you have to have to take care of the things you have. You're laughing because you know it's true, right? <laughs> and essentially, that's what Paul is saying, is that the more that you have in your life, the more you have to have in your life to take care of the things that you have in your life. And as good as those things are, there is a place where they begin to choke out the things that are the most important in this life, and that is our preparation and attention to the life which is to come. And that is the life of the Lord. Now, there is no life that is without circumstances. Paul is not advocating here that we live a monastic lifestyle and that we go live somewhere on a hill and we have nothing and all we do all day is... No, that would be... I, I, would, I, wouldn't, I don't even want to say a boring life. It would be a fruitless life because God uses the circumstances to make us what we are. For Paul the Apostle, to be unmarried was a definite advantage. But for me, it would be a detriment. He could not serve in his ministry if he wasn't married. I wouldn't be able to serve in my ministry. Wait, other way around. He wouldn't have been able to do his ministry if he was married. I wouldn't be able to do mine if I wasn't. And here's why. Because until I was married, I was a slob, irresponsible, unstable. You know, I, I was a mess. I, I had no stability in my life. God wouldn't have been able to do anything fruitful or profitable with me according to the gifts that he'd given to me. Marriage has been my salvation, not just because those things about me needed to be changed, and they have been changed because of the responsibility that forced me to do it, but also the things that I've learned about him and about the church through my wife and through my kids and through loving them and dying to self and all, all the rest. And so the circumstances that we have, whether we're married or not, God is using them, but what he's saying is don't go out of your way to heap things upon your life that are going to distract you from knowing him and walking with him. If you can live without the circumstances that create anxiety, then do it. Uh, and so for Paul, that looked like one thing. For us, it will look like something else. He says, but if in verse 36, any man think that he behaves himself uncomely or in an improper way toward his virgin, if she pass the flower of her age and need so require, let him do what he will. He sins not, let them marry. Now, this is a tough verse. Um, who's Paul talking about here? Is he talking about a father who is going to give his daughter in marriage or keep her from being married? And Paul is saying, hey, you have control over that. If you don't want to give her to marriage, then don't. Or is he talking about a man who is dealing with the subject of himself? Do I want to give myself to marriage or do I want to remain single? I don't, I don't know for sure. But for us, it wouldn't be uh, the, the former. It would certainly be the latter. He says, nevertheless, he that stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity but has power over his own will and is so decreed in his heart that he will keep his virgin or his virginity, depending on how you read it, he said, he doeth well. Meaning that if you are in a state in this world where you are not burning and you can contain yourself purely and live in a single place, he says, you will not regret that in your later life. He says, however, 
verse 38, so then he that gives her in marriage doeth well, but he that gives her not in marriage doeth better. So if you decide to marry uh, and not do that because you can't, then that's fine. You're not sinning against God. He doesn't look at you as less. You're not less spiritual. Paul is saying these are just matters to consider and ponder, and there's a reality to it. The wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will only in the Lord. But she is happier if she so abide after my judgment, and I think also that I have the Spirit of God. The musicians can come as we close, but here's the word that God has for us tonight as a congregation, is that whatever situation God has you in here tonight, you are in that situation with God. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not, then I don't covet the the circumstances that you're in or where your life is headed. But if you know Jesus Christ here tonight, then whatever those circumstances are, you're in it with God. That's true if you're in a bad marriage. It's true if you're in a good marriage or in a complex marriage. It's true if you're single and you're waiting for God to bring that person into your life and you're navigating through all the circumstances that that stage of life brings with it the questions and uncertainty of the future. God is with you in those things, and he's going to work it out. I remember uh, a a day as a new Christian walking with the Lord, um, not yet married, not yet engaged, um, no direction for life whatsoever, no career path, no no direction, no money, just a a whole host of problems. And and there was one day I just woke up with all these things swirling in my head, and I, I got up and I got in my car and I drove uh, to a park that was near my mom's house where I was living at the time. And I went for a walk on a frozen pond um, in complete solitude. And one by one, I just poured out my complaint before the Lord on each of these things. I said, God, I don't know who I'm going to marry or if I'm going to marry. God, I'm in debt up to my ears with, with things. I don't even know why I have them. I have a college loan, God, that I don't even, I shouldn't even have no business having it. I don't have anything to show for it. And, you know, just all these different things that, 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 that were so heavy at that point in my life, not knowing what would be the outcome of any of it. And, and I remember a day came, and it came relatively quickly, where every single one of those things was settled. I, I could look at my life and remember that moment, and then I was married, I was out of debt, God had me in a, in a course and a plan. There was things, and he had answered those prayers so specifically and so wonderfully. And all that to say is this, is that you here tonight, single person or young person, that's looking at your life. Or maybe you're an old, older person and there's a transition, there's a change, and you say, God, what in the world are you doing with these things? Listen, he is doing with those things. So give them to the Lord. You're with God in it. Stay in it. He's there with you. And he will not leave you or forsake you. He finishes what he begins. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, as we look at this chapter that gives to us perspective and insight into uh, our lives and the circumstances that make up our lives. And we just commit, Lord, right now, everything to you that makes our lives what they are. We would ask that your will would be done, Lord, and that you would help us, Father, as we make decisions, as we navigate through, God, that we would sense your presence above all else, that you would be with us, be near us. So we thank you tonight. Lord, if in us tonight there be anything from our past that's been haunting us, we ask right now, Lord, that there would just be a cleansing through the blood of Christ and his cross. And you would remind us again, Lord, that you're the God who makes all things new. You bind up what's broken and you fix, Lord, what we cannot. 
You're the God of the complex problem and you can come into a marriage, Lord, that's twisted, that so dis- seems so hopeless, so destroyed, and you can fix it, Lord. And so we commit all of these things to you, everything that makes up our lives, and we take comfort tonight, Lord, that you can see what we can't. So, Father, please, we ask that you would continue with us and help us, Lord, to bring you glory as we walk through this life. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen.